This show is supported by listeners like you at patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock, where you can sign up to receive two special The Russia Guy custom coasters, theoretically, if I ever send them. I'm gonna, for your drinks and your beverages and whatnot, if you pledge at least $10 a month. If he gave back Crimea to Ukraine today, he would be out of office this afternoon. Regional debt, I would say, is the ticking time bomb of the Russian economy. What the sanctions actually did was something much more insidious. Their ability to like make friends abroad through just paying for things, that's totally over. I just looked into the future and I saw, if I say yes to these sorts of things, it means that my academic reputation is gone, but it would be far more lucrative because I'd be that guy who's always being trotted out to say, Trump Putin is, you know, the greatest scandal of, of the modern age. Howdy folks, welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this is the show where I talk to movers and shakers in Russia-focused journalism, academia, and activism. On today's show, it's academia, baby. I am joined by Yuval Weber, the Kennan Institute Associate Professor of Russian and Eurasian Studies, who was also the inaugural Daniel Morgan Graduate School Kennan Institute Fellow. It's a mouthful, but he's an impressive fellow. He previously taught at Harvard University as a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Government. Yuval is working on a book now that asks why pro-market economic reform efforts in Russia follow similar trajectories, even among very different types of government, like monarchy, communism, and of course, today's sovereign democracy. Spoiler alert, he argues that when the security rationale behind reforms changes or disappears, so does the enthusiasm for the reform itself. I asked Yuval about his research, about how he got into this Russia game, about what it's like now as a relatively young Russia hand in D.C., and sprinkled throughout this interview are comments about U.S. sanctions against Russia, what it's like to engage ordinary Russians in Russia at public forums, and even an in-depth look at Russia's regional debt, which Yuval says is far more important and potentially destabilizing than most people realize, certainly than I realized. That and more in the interview. Now, here it is. The first question I, I wanted to ask right out of the gates was, uh, you've got this, this book coming out. As I understand it, your book is going to argue that the Russian authorities really only entertain serious economic reforms when it's like a crisis or an imminent collapse or is being perceived, like when there's some kind of existential threat to the regime? Is that kind of, is that in a, in a nutshell? The way to think about Russian economic reform is to think about what is the point of Russian leadership and the Russian economy. In most countries of the world, the thing that the government wants to do is optimize economic growth. Basically, the more money there is, the more money the government has to redistribute to you know, it's a core supporters or to the people in general, so on and so forth. That isn't exactly true in Russia, and it hasn't been true probably for several hundred years, but certainly in the time period that I'm looking at from the reforms of Pyotr Stalipin and Sergei Vite in the 1890s to the present, the whole idea of Russian economic reform is to do enough to get out of a crisis. And they only start to do this um, when the Russian economy becomes a security risk and they need to engage with 
the market just sort of like as a general concept as well as with the outside world through globalization in order to get the economy moving and so the book goes over five different case studies as i said like the end of the 19th century the very beginning of the 20th century 1920s and the new economic program of the time of lenin uh, the 1960s the what were called the kosygin lieberman reforms um the 80s obviously what kolesnikov is going over is you know perestroika and all that that rot um and then the the putin years and what has happened in terms of restoring the state's role within the economy itself and so in each one of these cases something has gone terribly wrong and the thing that the russian leader whether it's the tsar or general secretary or president wants to do is to hold on to power and that's when the russian leader you know from whichever period the key thing that that person has is the ability to pick and choose winners in the russian economy like that's like the key thing that authoritarian leaders have and so it's only when the prospect of losing power is so real that they then trot out some savior who's going to do these economic reforms um in recent years it's been let's say alexey kudrin um and abel aganbegian in the 1980s and we can go through and you know name all the different people but in each instance the pattern is the same growth in the economy is bad losing power seems likely we'll basically get some savior to come out and say we're going to do these economic reforms which will solve all of our problems they start to do it it starts to work but then they have the leader has the second uh fork in the road which is if they continue on with economic reform that cuts into their ability to pick and choose the winners in the economy and pick and choose their ability and weakens their ability to be the decisive factor in political life and so at that point either the crisis passes for whatever reason or they just fire the reformer and these have sort of different outcomes in the 1890s 1900s Stalin is assassinated and Nicholas the 1st or Nicholas the 2nd sorry he's more interested in holding on to power that also ends in tears for him in the 1920s Lenin passes and like net comes to an end soon thereafter in the 1960s Alexey Kosygin who's like a true hardcore insider starts to see that these economic reforms that you know even the Soviet Union's turn to the market is actually going to undo Soviet power. And so he himself brings it to an end, which shows like how he survived the Stalin period. And then in the 80s the country collapses. In the 1990s and into the 2000s, like the ideas that that Putin brings in, he basically tempers all these turns to the market once there's enough oil money that he can in in essence control the amount of marketization that Russia needs to do. And so that's why you just have you know what was called you know in times past russia being on this treadmill of reform because the whole point of the um the economic reforms is to not actually be successful but just to get out of a certain problem in order to just get to the other side so in this cycle where does the yeltsin administration fall how do you fit yeltsin into the cycles that you've described because it seems like he kind of falls after the collapse but before the kind of Putin restoration is it just that Yeltsin is still kind of part of the the crisis i guess or would you say that Yeltsin both enters as a reformer and then 
starts the the kind of retrenchment that Putin continues. Like, where? How do you just? How do you? How, what's your narrative of the Yeltsin years? I think the way to think about Russian power and sort of like the the roundabout way to get to thinking about Yeltsin is that there, we have two sort of basic ideas of how to look at Russian leaders. One of them is just this Iron Tsar, the guy who just points his finger, subordinates scurry, critics get murdered, that sort of thing. If you look at any book featuring Putin on the cover, you definitely get that idea that there's this hardcore dictator. But we also see in terms of, you know, people who study Russia, I think probably a bit more deeply, you also get these pictures of just palace intrigue all over the place. And that the key talent that any long-serving Russian leader has is the ability to balance all these different elite factions. And so I'd say that Russian leadership, just like in general, going back hundreds of years, is the good leaders know how to use enough power, like enough sort of like coercion in order to impose discipline on the state to some level, but then also know how to do this, all these different balancing acts. So where Putin comes in, or sorry, where Yeltsin comes in is he has basically seized power. He helped accelerate the end of the Soviet period. He helped accelerate the end of the Communist Party. And he's ready to do lots of stuff. He was really good at the first thing, basically being decisive and seizing power. He was absolutely terrible at the second thing, which is balancing the different elite functions. A lot of that isn't his fault because he did not have the oil revenues that Brezhnev had or that Putin would have uh, like in a couple of years. So he didn't have the political talent in order to be decisive, either decisive in terms of pushing through the market to the very end or decisive in terms of retrenching everything and ruling in a sense as uh, Putin would later do, which is just enough reform to keep people excited, to keep people interested, but not actually anything that would cut into his own power. So Yeltsin, I think his his motivations were seemingly like relatively pure, like in the sense that his key motivations were he hated the Soviet Union and he hated the Communist Party. Like whether you think that is good or bad, you know, that's up to you. But in terms of but in terms of everything else, it wasn't like the self-aggrandizement that I think others have. So at that level, he didn't have a lot to work with and didn't use it well. And that's sort of the, the 1990s. It was not going to be easy in any context, like once the Soviet Union came to an end. But I don't think it's necessary that it was basically as much of a bardak, as much bedlam as it was. And I think to the extent that he wasn't able to like really practice hardcore like day-to-day politics, that's what sort of led him to, you know, choose the easy way out, which is, you know, using state assets as collateral as the president of Russia to, you know, to do stuff to, um, you know, get the oligarchs to lend him money to help him as the candidate for the president of Russia, like in 1996. And like, that's the thing that really is one of the key inflection points in people losing faith in him. You think these watershed moments that you've described where the economy is in such a crisis, or I guess it's really, it's a matter of perception. Is that always accompanied by a change in the actual individuals in the leadership? Or would somebody like Putin after 20 years in power be capable of perceiving an economic situation that would warrant 
liberalization of some kind? Or does that, is, would, would the economy have to get to such a point where somebody else is actually going to get power before that? Or is like one leader capable of kind of doing an about face and switching over to liberalization if the regime kind of, and the economy falls into crisis? Like, how does that, is it always accompanied by regime change basically? Or could you have somebody turn on a dime? Like what's the, the mechanism that you've identified in your research? Theoretically, how would you see that work? Because it seems like most of the examples you've given, well, with the exception, I guess, of Kasigan, possibly, he did just turn on a dime, didn't he? Maybe he's the he's the counterpoint here. I don't know. What do you think about Putin? Kasigan in the 1960s just saw that this was, that the success of the program completely ran counter to the success of him personally staying in power and staying basically having a privileged position. Yeltsin, Gorbachev, they just didn't handle the day-to-day politics and the thing that Putin has done well, that the, his two predecessors did not, is Putin understands that the actual like performance of the economy, opinion ratings of like the people in general, these are all important, but they're not decisive. Putin is in power at this point for, what, 20 plus years, because he understands he needs the support of the Russian elite to stay in power. And the Russian elite looks at him And the key service that Putin offers to the Russian elite over everything else is his ability to adjudicate their disputes. So when they look at, you know, the times of troubles, the Smutnevremia of the 1990s, as you know, compared to what happened after Ivan the Terrible, whenever there isn't a strong leader in Russia, it's not that the people of Russia, you know, hate democracy or are unable to do it. It's that the elite of Russia are wholly incapable of not having a strong leader to solve their problems for them. And that the absence of a strong leader at the very top means that those people will shoot each other like in the streets. They will engage in corporate raiding. They will put each other in prison. So the key thing that Putin does is he allows those people to live relatively unmolested lives. And so long as that's true, he's gonna stay in power. So. I mean, but that's like insufficient. So what the elite and Putin both need is this idea of, you know, foreign policy success, being a great power, being able to stand up to either cooperate with the West in some way that seems equitable in terms of, you know, status or prestige concerns, or to be able to challenge the West in a totally fundamental manner. So for instance, Putin, if he gave back Crimea to Ukraine today, he would be out of office this afternoon. Because people would then say, why have we lived in relative privation for the last six years if we're not going to be a great power that the United States respects? So foreign policy, that's the thing that the the population needs in order to have an idea of where this is going. That we're going to continue this period of our history until we're a great power. The elite can also then look at that and say, Putin is the only person who can basically keep us under control, as well as keep the population united under some sort of very clear, but also extremely vague goal. Be a great power, respected as an equal by the United States. It's simple to understand, but essentially nearly impossible to affect in practice. And that's the way that Putin has been able to stay in power for 20 years. He needs to do liberalization, but just enough in order to get out of a crisis, but not so much that it would impinge on his ability 
to solve the disputes of those elites. One corporate raider versus another corporate titan, as long as he's the final vote or the final voice in whatever is happening between those two companies or those two individuals, he's going to stay in power. As soon as those guys don't need him or don't believe that he can do that, then he's gone. How do you do incremental liberalization for 20 years without it being a joke after year seven or whatever? Like, how does that, how is that feasible? Well, we can see that what are the alternatives? And that's like, that's the core cynicism I would suggest at the heart of like Russian economic reform is that in 2018, ahead of the previous election, Putin brought together like a bunch of, you know, Alexei Kudrin, former finance minister, head of the uh, audit chamber now, uh, Maxim Ereshkin, who's the economy minister, you know, a couple of right wingers, you know, just uh, Sergei Glazyev, who I think wants to destroy the United States on a daily basis, like those sorts of people. And he basically has them collect a bunch of ideas for economic reform. The point of that is to get people excited that Putin is going to take the very best ideas from the very smartest people in the country. He'll then basically take the most populist ideas out of them. So that because people always love, you know, having more stuff does that, which of course in Russia means that at the federal level, they make the promises, but then make the regional governments implement them. It's a sort of classic unfunded mandate. And so this is why if there's any actual true problem in Russia, something that could actually bring down the country, none of it has to do with foreign policy. It is all regional debt because regional debt in Russia operates on the same level as basically Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which people might remember the 2008 financial crisis. The core aspect of that was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac implicitly backed so much like government debt, like in the United States, but didn't explicitly back it. So what we have right now is Mordovia and Khakassia have public debt, like regional public debt, that's nearly 200% of like their annual GDP. So the audit chamber has taken over those two regions. Regional debt, I would say, is the ticking time bomb of the Russian economy. And that's because that these regions that are implementing big national projects that are designed by the federal government don't have enough money. They, they then borrow more than they should to implement them. And th then what then happens? That's actually like the nature of Russian power sort of like boiled down. In 2018, it'll happen again in 2024. It also happened in 2012. Like you remember the May decrees. Those are not so much the, the national infrastructure projects, but it's more the increased salaries for doctors, teachers, you know, more social spending, uh, more of the sort of day-to-day -day improvements in people's lives. Those are federal promises that are implemented at the regional level. Most regions in Russia are net beneficiaries of the federal budget. The only regions which give money to the federal budget are basically the commodity producers like up in the north and like in Siberia, as well as the big cities. So you're, if you're the regional governor of Vladimir region, you need to do all the things that Putin promised to your constituents. If you don't do it, you'll be out of a job because it is your responsibility. It's akin to what Putin and the people around him are doing to regional governors in terms of COVID response. What the governors are supposed to do is 
return really low rates of infection and really low deaths. So they have to do whatever it is that they have to do. So you get the governors who have this unfunded mandate. They don't have enough money to do whatever it is that they've been asked to do. If they don't do it, they'll be out of a job. And so then they borrow money on the open market. What the government then does is use this debt as a point of leverage against the regional governors in which they'll offer to roll over the debt, in essence, to buy it back at whatever high market level of interest and relend that money at a much lower level of interest so that the governor doesn't have to pay as much in terms of interest payments. And of course, that's the mechanism by which they discipline all of the different regional governors in order to make sure that Putin's instructions or whatever else get carried out as flawlessly as possible. And so once you multiply that over an entire country, that may work if you're disciplining regions one by one. But if you have several regions at once, which start suddenly start to lose money, they're not able to make their loan repayments back. Well, what if a really poor place like Khakassia or Mordovia, if they can't pay back their loans, what does that say about places like Vladimir or Kaluga, which is a bit richer? And what does that say about, you know, the next place and the next place and the next place? And Russia, like any other country, doesn't have enough money to pay for all the debt in the entire country. And this is not like a Russia-specific thing. The United States could not pay for all the debt inside the United States. That's both public and private. Russia can't do the same. So Russia would be in a position where they, like the federal authorities, would have to either guarantee the debt and take that on themselves or start to let the regions one by one go bankrupt. And then how can a country as great and mighty as Russia allow its regions to go bankrupt? And what would it mean exactly for a region to go bankrupt? Someone's going to repossess town halls, benches or something? Or What, what happens in, in that is, let's say uh, Vladimir region can't pay its uh, debts. So somebody holds that money. There are banks that hold that money. And if the bank is not getting its money because they're afraid of asking the governor, because they're afraid of angering uh, Putin, well, they can't basically lend out money further. What if the depositors come and just want to take some cash out to go on vacation or buy a washing machine? Where does that money go? It's those sorts of things that once when the economies like are running normally, it's totally invisible. But what we see in these crisis situations is that somebody actually needs cash in this moment to do something else. And so if a bank is unable to get its loan repaid, well, what if it's borrowing money from the central bank? Is it going to default on that loan? Is a central bank just going to let that uh, loan go, you know, of this regional bank? And you just have so on and so forth until you have these liquidity crises turning into these solvency crises. And to sort of bring it back to where we started on Gorbachev and Yeltsin, the Soviet Union basically turned a, a liquidity crisis into a solvency crisis, and the whole thing just collapsed. And because the Russian central bank doesn't have the ability to just like print money willy-nilly as the U.S. Federal Reserve does. I wanted to like turn away from kind of the like big questions and just ask you like a personal one. How did you get involved in 
academia and in analysis. I know you're, you, you know, you work in academia, but you do some contemporary analysis too. You appear on television for interviews occasionally and that kind of thing. How did you get into this line of work? Oh, thank you. So it's a, uh, it was a professional interest that turned into like a family story. So long story short, I got interested in Russia extremely indirectly. When my first year in college, I took a class called Literature in Exile. And the professor of the course was like a Czechoslovak emigre. She and her parents had escaped sometime in the late 1970s. They just went on a vacation to Switzerland or somewhere and just like didn't return. And so the course that she taught about being in exile, uh, literature in exile, featured almost totally Russian and Czech authors. And so then that summer, she led a study abroad trip to Prague. I went to Prague, totally loved it. Like, I don't know a, like a people on earth who fundamentally hate each other as much as the Czechs do. <laughs> it's just the most brutal, cynical people. Um, and it was great. Absolutely loved Prague. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to basically want to return, study the literature more deeply, then I should try to learn the language. So I started studying Czech. And I also had like a longstanding interest in history and politics, especially international politics. I was getting really, really into the the politics and foreign policy of the Czech Republic. This is like in the, I guess, early 2000s. My dad who is originally from Moscow, like he left the Soviet Union in 1972 and is totally not a Russian chauvinist, like in any way, just sat me down one day and said, look, if you're interested in international politics and foreign policy, that is completely at odds with studying the Czech Republic. It is a small country about to join NATO and they're going to lose their foreign policy. So either you study something that has nothing to do with foreign policy but if you're interested in the region, Russia is a much more natural place to study. And Russian language is much more natural given how, how many people are around the region speak it. I mean, I would say Russia is a country of 145, 147 million at this point, plus all the people who speak it in the diaspora, all the people who speak it in the former Soviet Union. So I thought that was actually a pretty good idea. Started learning Russian, went on a study abroad trip to Moscow for the first time in 2002. And Moscow at that point, it was pre-oil money. So it was basically like the last throes of just post-Sovietism, like before the place got cleaned up. Really, not, not that I'm like a particularly wild person, but really like no rules whatsoever. I just remember even on that trip, the there was a graduate student, you know, sort of chaperone, like some guy was studying like Slavic linguistics and totally like, nerd, total cornball. And like one day we just find out that he's gone, like he left. And we're like, what happened to that guy? You know, the guy with the ponytail. And the course director was like, well, apparently so-and-so met up with his old buddies. They climbed a fence and he fell from the top of the fence while totally drunk and smashed up his leg. It broke in like a zillion pieces and he got airlifted back to the United States. And we were like, whoa, Russia is super cool. So by the time that I started my PhD, I remember very distinctly, I wanted to study Russian foreign policy. And the, the, you know, the professors in the department, this is in early August, 2008, said, you know, Russia was really big one time, but I don't know if Russian foreign policy really has a future. 
And I totally thought, you know what? Russia's a big place. It's going to come back. And it was not more than, I think, a couple days later that the Russia-Georgia war happened. And I was like, ah, this is the first time I'll be validated in a really smug way. And so from there, I got a fellowship to study Russian language in Russia itself. And I got there as the Bolotna Square protests were happening. And obviously you have this idea that Russia is this like authoritarian place that, you know, what Putin says is what happens. But I come in the middle of this revolt against, you know, fixed parliamentary election results, the idea that Putin's coming back, like all that sort of stuff. And so that one year fellowship turned into four years in which I then finished the PhD and then got my first job at the higher school of economics and was basically working there for, you know, a couple of years. And so being there for Bolotnaya and then basically seeing Putin coming from the tan democracy to reasserting his true centrality in Russian politics. That was the first thing that, you know, I was able to observe up front. And what that taught me about Russian politics in general is that the key thing is holding on to power. That even if Medvedev does not have a huge constituency like in the country, may not have the, the most dominant constituency within the Russian elite, the idea that there are two bosses instead of one boss, that's something that could be used once, but basically that time had passed. And so the next big thing that happened was all the stuff having to do with Euromaidan, like the Euromaidan and Crimea and all that. And I don't, I hadn't actually started my job, but I like at higher school of economics. And there I was working under Sergei Karaganov, basically in the international relations department there. And all of my colleagues, like people who study Russian security policy, Russian foreign policy, things like that, they thought once like Crimea, like once the little green men, and it was clear that the fix was in, they were all scared out of their minds because they thought there's no possible way that the United States, after what happened in Georgia, would just let this pass. And so within the Russian foreign policy elite, the story that they had told themselves is that the Georgia war was the result, basically, and like all the stuff that had happened. They thought, how would the United States basically let one of its most treasured client states just get totally invaded, humiliated, and have, you know, the NATO expansion aspirations come to a complete and total end. The story that they told themselves, you know, in order to square that with the idea of the United States being a really powerful country, is that this happened in August of an election year, and that President, you know, then President George W. Bush didn't want to start a war with Russia over a non-treaty ally and then leave, you know, his successor, whether it be John McCain or uh, Barack Obama, with having to deal with that. And so even though John McCain was like, you know, friend of Saakashvili, you know, Saakashvili is a guy who's really good at making lots of friends, they just basically told the story, this was a moment in which we achieved victory, one, by overwhelming the Georgians. It wasn't the great fighting prowess of the, the Russian army. So they thought to themselves, Georgia was this one off, but now America is going to bring down the hammer because how can we steal or take or annex or whatever, you know, the, the nomenclature, how can we remove Crimea from Ukraine 
and just take it, and the U.S. does nothing when Poland is right there, when Romania is right there, when this is really a territorial change on the European continent. And the only reaction from the U.S. side was sanctions. It didn't crush the Russian economy uh, because the fall in oil prices did that. But what the sanctions actually did was something much more insidious. What the sanctions did was prevent Russia from exporting capital. So their ability to do like Eurasian Economic Union, their ability to like make friends abroad through just paying for things, like what China's One Belt, One Road does right now, that's totally over. So their apex as like a great power was basically the sanctions uh, policy. But my colleagues at that point just said, wait, if the U.S. does nothing when it's a Republican president and they seemingly do nothing when it's a Democratic president, these people, they're very powerful, but they're weak. They're not very decisive. And so I was then experiencing my colleagues in terms of shifting their views of the United States and their views on what is possible for Russian foreign policy just went through the roof at that point. So from there, I spent a couple of years in, in Moscow. I absolutely loved it. Loved giving lectures in, like, in the regions, like in provincial towns, because once, you know, there'd be an, an English-speaking or an American professor from Moscow coming to talk about foreign policy, you would just get every single person just going to like the local gymnasium or university or wherever they had me speak and just say, finally, this is my opportunity to abuse an American in person and in Russian. <laughs> and I, I love it because you either love talk radio and doing basically doing it live in front of an audience or you hate the experience. And I love interacting with people. So did you find yourself having to apologize for every bad thing the United States has ever done? Oh, the, 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 so hundred. So I can give you like every single question was like, why is the United States so bad, and how sorry are you personally for that? So like you can just sort of get into what aboutism, and then it's just sort of like it's just like endlessly frustrating for everyone. But what I would always do is criticize all the parts of U.S. foreign policy that I didn't personally agree with. And I would, you know, praise the stuff that I agreed with. I would criticize and praise the stuff of Russian foreign policy that I agreed or didn't agree with myself. So by not being a spokesperson for the State Department, people could say like, oh, once they got through the talking points that they had from First Channel or from whatever Solovyov show was like popular at the time, like whatever, like the the latest outrage from the West was, or whatever Kisilyov was talking about, you know, in those days, once they got through that and could just have like a back and forth, you actually can do the thing about public speaking, which is just educating an audience to the best of one's abilities. So I totally loved living in Russia. And to a large extent, I would have lived there for much longer. But then I got an opportunity to teach at Harvard. So I took that. Then I took an opportunity to come to D.C., because after Trump's election, I just felt that whatever Russia policy was going to be, or whatever the Russia story was going to be, that being in D.C. itself was just going to be very interesting. And what's it like being in D.C. now? Because as I'm listening to you, one thing I'm trying to do and failing to do is to put you in a familiar camp where you know you're, 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 are you a hawk? Are you a dove? Are you like a 
sympathizer or or a critic or you know something like that and and I'm you're young for one thing and also it seems to me that you don't fit neatly into any one pre-existing ideological camp how what's what what has been your experience so far in DC I mean Keith Gesson wrote this piece for the New York Times magazine a couple of years ago and I had him on this podcast to talk about it the audio quality was very bad. I apologize still to this day for all the popping and cracking. But uh, how, in terms of the generations of different Russia watchers and the different political camps, how have you found life as a Russia hand in D.C.? First of all, thank you for describing me as not being explicitly in one camp or another. It, that has been the worst branding decision of my entire life <laughs> from from both sides to say that you're not in a camp you mean or yeah because if you if you're in a camp when you have panels when there's like think tank jobs they're like oh we need like a super hawk or we need an apologist you know and you see sort of the same names like say the same sorts of things like time and time again for that very purpose and in fact like so when i was in when i was in harvard this was 2016 and like the election was going on. So obviously the story of like Trump Putin was, you know, at its fever pitch. And I got several opportunities from TV channels, like the big like cable channels, whose whose pitch was effectively, you've lived in Moscow for a couple of years. Are you willing to say on TV that Putin is the worst person on earth? Trump is the second worst for being his friend. And here's how they've been in bed together. You know, let me count the ways. How do they convey the, those expectations? Is it like a pre-interview or is it even before you get to that stage that they, they're they like trying to understand what you'll say? Like, how does that process actually go about happening? So it, it's very clear. So they'll say, hi, I'm so-and-so producer for whatever channel. And we're interested in doing a story on Trump's really close relationship with Putin because we're interested in the extent of the collusion. As you've lived in Moscow for the last several years and you teach Russian politics at Harvard, you know, with the implication there, you have both like, you know, in-country as well as expert credibility. Will you be able to talk about that? And so when you and then when you sort of have these conversations, they just want you to use your academic reputation or in-country experience to just say yes to whatever it is that that segment is about. And I just, I just looked into the future and I saw if I say yes to these sorts of things, it means that my academic reputation is gone, but it would be far more lucrative because I'd be that guy who's always being trotted out to say Trump Putin is, you know, the greatest scandal of of the modern age. So I neglected to do that and remain in semi-obscurity since. But to the extent that I, I'm involved in, in policy analysis in D.C., which I try to do to the maximum extent, as you suggested, w- one of the differences between me and a lot of people in Washington is, although you, you very kindly said I was young, at the, at the tender age of 38, my Russia and my experience with Russia is of Putin's Russia and Putin's Russia only. And a lot of the people who are, let's say, one or two generations before me, and this is not denigrating them whatsoever, in a general sense, the Russia that people bring with them to D.C. is the Russia that they personally experienced. So, for instance, 
there's a lot of, you know, Soviet hands, these guys who are, you know, in the CIA or worked in the embassy during the 70s and 80s. And their view of Russia is totally just spy versus spy, really confrontational. These people are super hawks. Or you get people like, let's say, Jack Matlock, who comes from that universe, but are basically super doves on Russia because their view of the U.S.-Russia relationship is that if it doesn't work, it ends in nuclear war. You then have people like Mike McFall, whose experience with Russia is that really optimistic period where perestroika and glasnost were happening and Russia becoming a democracy was not only a theoretical possibility, but it actually happened. And so the Russia that they want isn't like, you know, the super hawk, super dove, but getting Russia to the ideal liberal democracy that they thought was possible, but if only this or that didn't happen. And so then you get myself, who doesn't have those ideological commitments to Russia being a forever enemy or just this democracy averted, but just basically living in a, you know, some like a fairly soft authoritarian country in which there's no substantive democracy in terms of choosing or replacing the leader but that your life can go on in a totally normal way and you can enjoy yourself like in contemporary Moscow. You can break your leg. You can, you can uh, climb a fence. If, if you, <laughs> if you want to get wasted, climb a fence, fall off and get medevac back to the United States, you're totally free to do so. And that is freedom. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so because I didn't have those, because I don't have those commitments, I'm able to not call for regime change at every single moment. I don't think that Vladimir Putin is the worst person on earth, you know, Satan reincarnate. I also believe that, you know, what Russia can do is definitely improve, but within fairly limited parameters. And so because I had spent such a long, a relatively long time there, you know, for, you know, non-citizen, I'm not a hawk because like, I fundamentally like don't hate Russia. Like I don't. I loved living there. I loved Moscow. I loved Russian culture. The whole thing is crazy, but like it was for me. But I also have no illusions as to like what the country is. It's a country that maximizes political stability over personal or collective freedom. So because I'm not saying we need to do all, we need to cooperate with Russia no matter what, or we need to basically turn the screws as hard as possible on Russia that basically puts me in something in which I can sleep at night, but doesn't make me as exciting on panels when I'm not calling for, you know, sanction everyone or remove the sanctions. That's my interview with Yuval Weber, the Kennan Institute Associate Professor of Russian and Eurasian Studies. Check the description of this podcast episode for hyperlinks to his Twitter profile and his page at the Daniel Morgan Graduate School of National Security. If you enjoyed this interview and like listening to this podcast, please consider visiting patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock, where you can make a contribution. And this is something I'm increasingly guilty of having. I'm just, uh, I feel bad promoting it, but I do have an audiophile supporter tier. And the reason I feel bad is I have promised people these custom coasters with the logo on it, the podcast logo, artwork by Yuli Drobova. It's very nice. They're cool. I've been using the same one for many months now, and I admit it's a little warped. 
So I'll be sending people too when I finally get off my ass and do it. It's not hard. The post office is just a few blocks from my house, honestly. It's just, I'm just, I'm, I'm a bag of shit. I need to do it. I apologize to everybody out there. It's going to happen. You're going to love them. You're going to feel like I didn't let you down. And uh, yeah, I look forward to that time when I don't have to make this apology every single episode. Uh, I really need to do this. Maybe there's some humor in it. (laughs) It's probably running thin, though. Anyway, if you do want these coasters, you've got to leave an address when you uh, sign up to contribute at Patreon. If you don't leave me an address, I can't send them anywhere, obviously. Thank you, everybody, who is already pitching in, especially with the knowledge that I'm I'm so bad about sending these, these, these promised coasters. I am always happy to get feedback on Twitter. If ever you have a comment or a question, you can email me as well. Um, you know the drill. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. Говорят мы пяки буки, как выносит на земля. Дайте что ли карты в руки, погадать на короля.